Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about Jordan Henderson and captaincy. One of the, the most interesting things is when dealing with sort of British sport is why we put so much importance on the role of captaincy. It's like the joke when you whenever you, you, know, you talk about Italian football captains and they just give it to the person who's either the oldest or the most who has the most caps at any given moment. It's not something that's particularly important. There's usually an experienced player, you give them the captaincy and they just do the you know, the on field, you know, they give the pennant to the oppo, they shake hands, they do the coin toss. That's about it really. It's not particularly valued. It doesn't have the significance and, and the symbolism. So the the first question you have to ask is why is it so important to English players, to the fans and media in football? For me, the, the obvious the answer is it's the cricket captain. Because it, it it's such a vital tactical position. You know, the importance, you know, selectorially. And then you have the sort of role of the rugby captain leading his men into battle. The the, the idea of an on-field general. You know, in, in a way it's you know, it's reminiscent of kings leading men into battle. You know, you, you take, you know, um, Shakespeare and Henry V once more unto the deep breach, dear friends, once more. You know, it, it's bled into our sort of national self-identity. You know, you have, you know, the Second World War and Winston Churchill. So the, the idea of leadership being this very visible thing. And in a way, because we have so many different sports that have you know, captaincy so important, while football is probably the least important you know, on-field role in comparison with rugby, where you're dealing with the referee a lot of the time, in terms of interpretations with cricket, you have the, the field placings, you know, the bowling changes, everything is far more important. But as a result, we don't realise that most countries don't have such leadership-intensive sports. You know, if you take um, the US, which is, you know, really a sort of cousin sporting, you know, sporting profile, which is very much coach and owner-led. You know, you think of John McGraw, the legendary you know, New York Giants skipper. You think of my manager. You think of Vince Lombardi in American football. You know, Al Davis with the... Raiders, you know, the Oakland Raiders, the LA Raiders, and even in the sort of modern culture, you have GMs being hugely important, you know, Theo Epstein, Brian Cashman, but no one really ever focuses on captains. So, some teams don't even really have captains, they're just people that go and do the coin toss. It's they're never given any, any kind of profile or particular Im- importance. You know, I think if you take the, 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 the countries that sort of have the closest. You know, situation where there's sort of a veneration of captain, where the role of captain is important, would probably be New Zealand and Australia because they have the most similar sporting profiles. Where you know you play cricket, you play rugby, you know, you have rugby league, you even have sort of Aussie rules, and that's really why they have an importance to captaincy because most other countries don't have. You know, you, you have some countries that play cricket but don't play rugby. You have some countries that play rugby, but don't have any interest in cricket. So, really coming back to national self-identity, I think when you're dealing with the second half of the 20th century, so the post-World War II, 
there's a sense of disappointment from post-imperial decline that seeps into sports. So you, you have various World Cup failures. You know, in cricket, you you have the dominance of the Australians. You have the dominance of the West Indies. You know, in rugby, you had Australia and New Zealand and even Wales for periods of time. You know, in both rugby league and rugby union, dominating. You know, outside of '66, which is Bobby Moore, and you know, the idea of captaincy is idealization of what being English or British means. The point is, I can't really actually give you a working definition of what Britishness is. It's the Potter Stewart definition of pornography. You know it when you see it. You know when you see the images of the iconic images of Bobby Moore and what Bobby Moore stood for. That is Englishness at its kind of best. You know, and so really, with this, you know, outside of Bobby Moore, until really 2003 and Martin Johnson, you know, with the rugby union winning it in Down Under against Australia, in Australia, you have underachievement in the sort of major British sports. And so there's a sense of, you know, needing a leader to bring England back to their rightful place. It's the sort of the great man theory, is that, you know, Ah, brilliant. You know, Martin Johnson. He leads by example. He's a form of muscular Christianity. And really, but on a more wider point, it's leadership being what you want it to be. So in cricket, you have a more sort of intellectual, slightly more class-based view of it. You know, you have Mike Braley, The Art of Captaincy, the book he wrote, writes, and how he masterfully dealt you know, with Ian Botham, got the best out of him in the... 1981 Ashes, despite it, you know, Mike Brealy not actually bringing much to the, you know, in terms of actual performance. You know, this is a guy who averaged in the mid-twenties in terms of his batting average in Test match cricket. You know, leadership is what you kind of want it you know, to be. Because you know, a lot of our sports don't, you have a limited ability for coaches to intercede. You know, you, you really, you know, in cricket, you don't have any substitutions. You know, in rugby, you, you have half-time. In football, you have half-time. You know, a limited amount of subs. Which naturally gives more importance to the captain as being the, the on-field leader. Whereby in baseball, whereby in American football, you know, in American football, you can actually, you know, the coach can speak to his players, you know, while they're on the field. You know, in baseball, you, you can have, the, the coach can lay down all of the, the signs. So... So where this leads to sort of Jordan Henderson and you know the importance that's been given to him as being the, the Liverpool captain in the last you know two or three seasons, he's almost it's a, a sort of chameleonic effect. In some ways, he sort of blends into whatever the viewer really wants to see. So if you think that you know he is, you know, a great leader, you think you know if you let's say you take a Liverpool fan who might think Jordan Henderson is underrated. You know, they see his passing range, they see some of his long-range spectacular goals, they see him as sort of being versatile, you know, can play all across the midfield, you know, box-to-box, -box, can do the holding role, you know, he's got a good cross on him, and that, you know, he's really the heir to Gerrard. You know, he's stepped out of that shadow, finally. You know, he's the continuation of a long list of long line of great Liverpool captains, Ron Yeats, 
Tommy Smith, Emlyn Hughes, Phil Thompson, Sooness, Alan Hanson. You know, great Liverpool captains that have won home and abroad and you know, lifted trophies. You can see him as this sort of against the odd fit against the odds figure. You know, refusing to leave to Fulham after his first couple of seasons when you know Liverpool would have quite happily have got rid of him. You know, retaining his role in the side despite the signing of Fabinho, you know, Naby Keita. You know, the issues that, you know, Ferguson, Alex Ferguson said about his gate and why Manchester United weren't interested in signing him because he felt that the way how his gate and the way how he ran would lead to injuries. And then you have, on the other side, there's a general sense that, you know, some people see him as overrated, as a bit of a donkey. And all of it is painting in broad brushstrokes, black or white. You know, it's the idea of needing a definitive sort of hot take. You know, there's a, a lack of nuance to it. And in some ways, what you have is that he bec- he's become the personification of the near-miss years. You know, with Gerard and Suarez, with the slip, with Benitez, with Brendan Rodgers. Because he plays this kind of role in the Liverpool resurgence that nobody else has. You know, kind of the last link to the Gillette, you know, Hicks fallout with the ownership, the barren years, the Roy Hodgson era. And in some ways, he kind of represents the struggle in a way that a more gifted foreign player wouldn't. In the sense that, you know, if you take the front three of Liverpool, fantastic players. They generally tend to be sort of broadly happy-go-lucky figures. You know, with Alisson, with Virgil van Dijk, they're more sort of Rolls-Royce-style players. They're very graceful. And in some ways, there's a... You know, using Jordan Henderson, it sort of covers a slightly inconvenient truth that Liverpool getting to the next you know level... Was a financial injection. You've signed Virgil van Dijk, you've signed Allison, and it makes and it limits really the role of Klopp and Henderson. You know, it turns the Real Madrid and Seville final defeats into personnel failings rather than a you know a morality tale of the value of perseverance. You have the influence of the money that Fenway Group, the ownership group, have put into it. It's more impersonal. It's an element of moneyball. The idea that actually they've just spent a large amount of money, particularly well, it's been very well organised, it's taken a few years, and now they've been very successful. It's you there's almost a need to try and link it to the storied, you know, Liverpool way. The way of the, the history, the fact that you've had this long gap where yes, they've won a you know, they've won the Euro yeah, won the UEFA Cup. They've won a couple of Champions League. They've won FA Cups. They've won League Cups. But they didn't win the big one. And so in some ways, Henderson, his intensity, and it's recognised by the fans as sort of emblematic of their fervent love for the club. And in some ways, it's reassuring that you know, you have this brilliant, all-round, fantastic football team. It's so talented. It's so effervescent. But it has a steely side to it. Someone that's going around shouting and really showing you how much it means. This grit, this determination. In some ways, it's a sort of antidote to the Spice Boys Liverpoolers of the 90s. In other words, they're not just a team that's going to fall short because they were too nice. There is a bit of a hardened edge to it. 
that really is linked to that kind of Liverpool of soonness, where there is going, you know, we will win and we will battle to the end. <laughs> so really, the importance then is to sort of contextualise Jordan Henderson. He's not a hard scrabble. You know, biting all the odds, someone who was nearly released four or five times, who you know came up through the you know the football league. He he, he isn't that. He was the record signing for a teenager. It was six between sixteen and twenty million pounds. That's a huge amount of money back when that transfer was made. You know he was highly rated. You know he was primarily playing as a right midfield. Played a little bit centrally for Sunderland. I think even at one point he'd sort of stepped in and had been you know captain of Sunderland as a team. I think he filled in. I don't believe he was ever actually the full-time captain, but, you know, fact-check that one. But he was, you know, even that Sunderland, it was his hometown club. You know, and that was, you know, before Sunderland really did their sort of dive towards, you know, just survival. This was when they were kind of close to mid-table, even, you know, at times, you know, threatening to make a run at the qualification for the, you know, the Europa League. So he was highly rated. He was, you know, there was lots of clubs other than Liverpool interested, and it was a bit of a coup for Liverpool, a coup for Liverpool to actually have signed him. And while you can say maybe the first couple of years at Liverpool, you know, were a bit of a struggle, you know, th- I think there's been a, a sense of trying to retrospectively say that he was, you know, played out of position on the right, and that didn't suit him. When really, that's not the case. He always, you know. That wasn't a surprise to put him as a right midfielder. That's what he was generally considered. That was his best position at, at Sunderland. So yeah, he, he did. There was struggles, but then you know it was a young player you know, making a you know a step up. So the point is, and somehow some of the you know narrative surrounding him have always said that oh he somehow sort of developed this versatility, when really he always had that. He always could play central. He could always play you know further out on the right, there was always that part of him that was box to box that could, you know, step back and maybe do a more holding role or one that could go a bit further forward. But the point is his versatility was in the narrow construct of being a midfielder. It's not like the Fernandinho style of versatility where he's excelled as a centre half and as a defensive centre mid. I don't think Jordan Henderson could do that necessarily. And in some ways you could make the argument that he, in some ways, his reputation and the way how people view him is almost that he's being punished for simply being a solid all-round all-rounder, rather than excelling at a position or a sort of specific statistical category. And I think there is some merit into that. He scored some important goals, you know, made important assists. He's been part of a dominant Liverpool team at home and abroad. He's respected by the manager, by the pros. He's loved by the the fans. But at the same time, on the no side of the ledger, you know, his offensive numbers have really cratered. I mean, basically, you have the year under Rodgers where he does pretty well, where you know, Gerrard was the sitting midfielder, scored quite a few, had a few goals, a few assists, you know, made some really you know, impressive appearances. And then really the, 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 his sort of peak season in terms of attacking is 14-15. You know, he gets six goals, nine assists. Hasn't really built on that since then. And that's good numbers, but it's not a leap for you know, a 38-game league season. 
it leads Liverpool to sixth place. And that really, fundamentally, I don't think he is necessarily good enough to be the central pillar of an outfit, either defensively or offensively. In other words, Liverpool have done really well as an attacking unit because they had you know, Coutinho, they then had Firmino. You had this you know, breakout season for Salah. You had the fantastic performance consistency of Mane and the improvements that he's made, and the fact that the team has improved. You know, in all you know facets of the game, in defensively, in terms of depth, and so okay, then, well, is he a world class defensive midfielder? No, I I don't think you can compare him to N'Golo Kante. I don't think you could compare him to Fernandinho. If you look at it. Look how many defeats they've had in Europe in the last you know couple of seasons. You know this season they lost late on to Napoli away from home. They lost to Atletico Madrid. They conceded three at home to Salzburg the season before. They had you know three defeats in the group stages to Napoli, Red Star Belgrade, PSG. They lost to three 0 away to Barcelona. You know they're not an effective away team in Europe. You know they are over reliant on Fortress Anfield. You know, you you take, can even take the you know the Dortmund Europa League comeback. If you compare Liverpool away from home in the last two seasons to Spurs away from home in the Champions League, Spurs are a much better outfit. You know, they've managed to get draws at the Bernabeu, draws at the New Camp. You know, they got the result away at Ajax. You know, they've had, they've won away at Dortmund and kept clean sheets. Whereby Liverpool, with sort of Jordan Henderson playing a slightly deeper role that he does in Europe doesn't have that solidity. They're still vulnerable away from home. They still really are reliant on their home form more than anything else. You know, okay, so you can say, well, you know, has Jordan Henderson really stepped up at international level? You know, comparable with, you know, sort of John Obi Mikhail playing at 10 for Nigeria. The point being is that he had this talent, he had this profile to be the number 10, to be the captain for Nigeria to play a much more forward role because obviously at Chelsea, you know, his role was really to be a defensive midfielder, to just do the basics, just to be the destroyer, make the tackles, make the blocks, and just be, you know, solid and pass to you know a more attacking, more creative, you know, forward player. You know, has there really been a sort of standout Henderson game for England? I wouldn't say so. I mean England have got better while he's, you know, been part of the, the squad. But it's generally solid, but fairly unspectacular. I think you know the Croatia game really highlighted that kind of lack of creativity that England had in midfield that day. That when push came to shove, they weren't really defensively you know, tight enough in midfield. They weren't ever able to really stop Modric, and they weren't really able to maintain possession or really have a huge amount of attacking promise. You know, and that's you know that was a collective failure. That wasn't all on Jordan Henderson. But, you know, I think to conclude, you'd have to argue that he's an above-average midfielder. But he's not substantially better than that. You know, in other words, he is just a solid piece, you know, in a very talented squad. You know, both internationally and domestically. Which, to me, really brings into the, the sense of English football and the role of the other. The idea that... With the Premier League, what the Premier League is brilliant at is utilising talent. So in other words, you, with Manchester United, you had Eric Cantona and you had Alex Ferguson. You know, 
with Arsenal, you have Arsene Wenger, Patrick Vieira, which really leads to the situation where you have a culture of presenteeism for English players. In other words, you know, James Milner is your classic example. You know, he's an accomplished, talented, you know, well-respected, you know, pr very good football player. But really, his career since, you know, leaving Aston Villa, he's been a glorified sixth man for City and for Liverpool. You know, by sixth man, it's the basketball concept. The idea is that you have your starting five, and then you have the sixth guy who is off the bench, who fills in. And that's really what he's done. I mean, if you take you know that one season at Liverpool where he played as fullback, because he just wasn't good enough for a full-time midfield role. Yes, they were a bit short at fullback, but the thing is, is that they really were able to take him out of midfield without anything, re without any drop-off. You know, at Man City, you know he's filled in as a false nine. He plays centre mid. He played winger. He played wide midfield. He even did a bit of defensive midfield. But the real question is, did he really, in his peak, reach his full potential? No, arguably not. You look at his career numbers. They are relatively pedestrian. It's 534 appearances, 55 goals, of which 17 of them were penalties. So in other words, you know, that's 38, you know, open play goals from 500 plus appearances. You know, 84 assists, it, it's good. But the point is, is his career medals are not pedestrian. But the thing is, is that it was almost easy to water carry for David Silva, for Yoyo Torre. You know, so really the question is with Milner, is did he ever have any responsibility at Man City? No, the real responsibility was on Silva, it was on Yaya Torre, it's on Sergio, it's on, you know, Pep Guardiola. You know, even before that, Roberto Mancini. It's the, the, the foreign players, the foreign managers, are the ones that take on the responsibility. And the English players basically turn up and do the, the gritty work. In other words, James Milner would fit in wherever you asked him to. And then that ble ble sort of bleeds into his international career. He had 61 England caps, and he scored one goal. You know, he wasn't ever utilised for an extended period of time as a fullback. He was never used really as much as a defensive midfielder. He was primarily used on the wing and in the attacking midfield positions. And that one goal was either the fourth or fifth goal in a 5-0 qualifying win against Moldova. You know, can you remember recall a memorable James Milner England moment or performance. I couldn't. I looked it up and I think that the closest thing was that he supplied the cross for Jermaine Defoe to get a World Cup winner in the group stages against Slovenia. Again, that's fine. I, as far as I can remember, that cross was a pretty good cross. It was a good finish from Jermaine Defoe. It was needed. We needed to win that game to you know, qualify out of the group. But it's not particularly, like, that's not massive, you know, for such a large amount of caps to really have a couple of, mo you know, a couple of moments against low-ranked opposition. Yeah, the point is, is that the problem that you have is, is David May syndrome. Yeah, some of his career numbers were a bit pedestrian in comparison with the talent he had. 
but his career medals aren't. Lots of, you know, he's now won the Champions League at Liverpool, he's won the league, you know, with Man City, he's won cups. And for a lot of these sort of two thousand years in the 2000s, you, you almost had a designated foreigner role for the England national team. So that would be Gaza or Wayne Rooney, even David Beckham to a lesser extent in around 2002, round about the 2002 World Cup. They were the talisman, they were the one that was going to lead England to, to victory and to glory, and everybody else was just sort of filling in. So, And you match that with then a designated scorer. So with Gaza, he was the great player in midfield, the, the talisman, and then you had the designated scorer, which was Gary Lineker. Okay, so then you move on to the sort of Wayne Rooney years, where he was almost, in a way, the talisman and the designated scorer. Yeah, in the 90s, you had Alan Shearer. Early 2000s, you had Michael Owen. You now have Harry Kane. And that's, for me, the damage that the presenteeism has for England. It forces responsibility onto the manager and to the one or two designated stars. Everybody else is really playing six out of ten. They're, you know, they're unable or unwilling to take on broad responsibilities. You know, with Paul Scholes, even you know, with all the talent, especially in the back half of his career, when he wasn't able, didn't have the you know, the motor to go box to box as he once did, and where the you know his first breakthrough really as an England midfielder was the goals. You know, he would score, make those runs from midfield. He got that hat-trick against Poland, scored two goals against Scotland in that qualifying, in the qualifying playoff for Euro 2000. You then had the goals he scored at Le Tournoi. But really, in the second half of his career, when he became, you know, his passing and the control he had, but he never managed to get the England side built around him, like sort of Pirlo in Italy. And for me, the problem is is that at Manchester United, you had Keane, Cantona, Ferguson, Schmeichel, Ronaldo. They were the ones who took on the, the great responsibility. And so when you then were at England, that was the problem. There was no Cantona. There was no Ronaldo. There was no Roy Keane who was dominating, who was pushing them on to victory. Now, for all of the vers versatility that... you know. James Milner's had in his career, has it really made him be a better player? And I don't think you can say that. You know, compare it to, let's say, Harry Kane, who's improved every sort of facet of his all-round game. So yeah, he was always good at banging in goals. So then he got better at dropping deep and some of his passing, some of the through balls that he's done. You know, he's always trying to... There's always some element of his game that he's trying to improve. In some ways, you could almost fault him for trying a bit too hard for putting too much pressure, for trying to play too many games, too many minutes, which is never, you can never say the same for, you know, Milner. You know, he's, he's happy the time to, you know, spend time on the bench, he's happy to, you know, just be, just to do his sixth man role. Yep, yeah, oh, you need me to play fullback, skip, no worries. It's that, and you don't have that feeling that he ever really got to the full potential. What could he have done had he decided that he wasn't just willing to be the guy that played 25 to 30 times a year for Liverpool or for Man City or to go to a club where it, the team would have been built around him? 
whether we could have seen what the full extent because he did he he you know he has the passing range he has the motor he has the determination he has all of the bits and pieces you would need he had the crossing to have been a really interesting and a really fantastic player and yet you know when it comes to you know writing his sort of career obituary I, it's i don't really know what you're going to sort of end up really just leaning on you know well he tr- he was a trier you know he was you know, a good club man which i think is a bit of a, a bit of a backhanded compliment to be honest and it says more about us in terms of the you know overrating you know presenteeism the idea of the idea of grit the idea of just putting in a shift the sort of the square jawedness of Milner and the sense that you know and in the wider sense of like our own overrating of, of captaincy you know, when has captaincy failed i mean my, my favorite one about this would be the, the sense that two of the greatest moments in, in modern chelsea history would be the semi-final second leg against barcelona where they made that fantastic comeback with 10 men and then the fa- in the final when they you know went to play bayern munich in bayern munich's home ground and won that on penalties, having been behind, having been minutes away from losing. And yet, none of that had anything to do with John Terry. You know, John Terry was the reason they were down to ten men in Barcelona. And it wasn't some great, heroic, you know, taking one for the team when someone was clean through, having to take the red card to keep Chelsea in it. He basically need Alexis Sanchez in the arse, and got a straight red just before half-time. It was stupid, it was petulant, you know, it made him miss the final, but it didn't matter. Even like with, you know, and then compare that with Cristiano Ronaldo and the Euros final, where he goes off injured fairly early into the game and was just a cheerleader for the rest of the game. And yet people were trying to sort of suggest that, you know, he his... You know, presence on the sideline was somehow inspirational when all he could do was shout just like the rest of us. You know, in the end, I don't think he inspired Portugal to beat France. You know, they, you know, it was the players on the field, it was a fantastic finish from the Swansea backup striker. Uh, it was interesting, I was reading, I've read a few different articles from different places with people arguing the concept that Jordan Henderson should be player of the season in the English Premier League. I think it's ridiculous, but what is it really based around? And well, I've sort of touched on this earlier, but I think it's the idea that you have the you know, collective Liverpool struggle to win the league title over 30 years. And in some ways that can then be used as sort of mirroring his own narrative arc of his Liverpool career. The idea that he's the, you know, shadow of Gerald, the last remaining squad member from the 13-14 near miss under Rodgers. And the sense that you also then have this lack of a truly standout attacking player. So the problem is, is that you end up with because Mane, because Salah and Firmino have all been brilliant. I'd suppose I personally my my favourite out of that three would be Firmino. I think he's the one that really makes them tick. Yeah, Salah's probably dropped off from that wonder season, but he's still you know putting up the numbers, still scoring the goals. You know, Mane's obviously you know improved, but the point is that splits the vote. In other words, there's not 
a consensus. In other words, you can make arguments that Marnier's had a better season than Firmino. You can make an argument that Firmino's had a better season. But there's not one. It's not like, you know, sort of Alan Shearer, 94-95, and Rovers. And then you then have the difficulty then of choosing between Trent and Andy Robertson. It's really akin to a parent picking a favourite child. Again, it splits the vote. You know, can you know it has Trent been that much better than you know Andy Robertson because they're both effective because you both they both need each other, and so okay you you've had this overarching you know dominance all season so it would be really incongruous to to have you know Virgil Van Dyke or Allison win the award, you know because it, Liverpool's title if they win the title. And let's just say we live in an alternate universe where there's no COVID-19. Yeah, Liverpool would have won the league. But it, it was based on their scintillating attacking football and late goals. You know, it's only really partially underwritten by the defensive solidity. It's not led by it. In other words, they could have conceded 10 or 15 more goals and still absolutely walked the title. It's, you know, if you were going to have a defensive player as you know, of a league championship winning side... It's you know, you'd have the one of the Arsenal back four, you know, the George Graham side that were absolutely reliant on their defensive solidity to basically allow them to win the league. And the thing is, what it, the whole argument really comes down to overvaluing captaincy and leadership. I mean, did Liverpool really need huge amounts of leadership this season? No. They have an experienced squad. Man City imploded early into the season. Chelsea had a new manager and a transfer ban, and they were getting lots of younger players. You know, you had Spurs in turmoil. You had Pochettino sacked. Arsenal sacked their manager. Man United are in transition. You know, Leicester were too green to maintain the pressure. So there was no meaningful title race. It's been a procession. You know, the fans were happy. They were the reigning European champions. They'd got 97 points the year before. Almost won the league. You know, they threw both domestic cup competitions. So there was no real major fixture pile-up, you know, a la the 1999 Manchester United treble winning team. You know, they lost to Watford before the... before any of the pressure from, you know, matching the Invincibles was laid down. In other words, we were still maybe three or four more games before it would start to, that pressure would start to build. They had a huge lead before they went to Qatar for the World Club Cup. You know, they had had no major departures, no major injuries. The manager was stable. The ownership was stable. There was no stadium works. You know, the manager is a huge media presence. So there wasn't a sense that, that there was ever any, any sort of vacuum that needed to be filled up by a strong leader. You know, you've there. There was no major arrivals to disrupt the squad. There wasn't a sort of Tino Esprit and Newcastle situation. So really, and then if you, so in my mind, yeah, I think he's been a you know good captain. I think he's respected. I've said that already in the podcast, but I don't think that is massively important in terms of this season. So okay, you're kind of left with with his numbers this season. It's. He's scored three goals, five assists, he's played a little bit further forward. But if you compare that with, with anybody else in the Premier League, even if we're just going to say English midfielders, take Jack Grealish's season. Seven goals, six assists. Captain, local hero. 
they've had to have the step up from the championship. Huge amounts of new players. You know, they've beat Leicester in a two-legged you know, League Cup semi-final. You know, they ran Man City close in the League Cup final. You know, Jack Grealish is the only reason that Aston Villa have any chance of staying up. You know, it's a relatively struggling team. They've had injuries. And he's really made the players around him better. Yeah, and he's that's his age twenty four season. You know, you compare it with you know Todd Cantwell, first year in the Premier League, his you know age twenty one, age twenty two season. Team that's been rooted to the foot of the table, but has broadly speaking played great football. Six goals, two assists. You know, Madison scored six goals, three assists in his age twenty three season. You know, he he's been and that's you know he's been a key figure in Leicester competing and breaking into the top four. You know, even Mason Mount has got six goals, five assists. You know, Declan Rice has got two assists this season, and he's a far more defensive player. You know, even if you take, you know, Ginny Wijnaldum, still has got three goals this season. So okay, if Jordan Henderson's season isn't better than any of those other seasons, I mean, it's one of the, I think the more fascinating elements was actually looking up um, Wijnaldum's career numbers in comparison so basically with Jordan Henderson his Premier League career has been 335 appearances 29 goals 46 assists and in about the half as amount of playing time Wijnaldum has got you know in 170 appearances has got 24 goals and 16 assists so if you were to basically double Wijnaldum's you know Premier League numbers he'd be searching out 340 games, 48 goals, 32 assists. So really, the only advantage you can probably argue is that, you know, and this is Wijnaldum, who spent back-to-back seasons playing for a relatively poor Newcastle team. But he's had back-to-back 11-goal seasons in the Premier League. The only thing that, you know, Jordan Henderson would have a huge, you know, lead on is assists. But Wijnaldum has scored virtually the, the same amount of goals as Jordan Henderson in half as many appearances. You know, Wijnaldum has played in the th- in the front three. He's played up front in the false nine. You know, he's done. He's probably a more versatile player than Jordan Henderson. You know, if you look at Jordan Henderson's international numbers, fifty-seven games, no goals. I imagine he's got a handful of assists. It's not something you can actually look up, which I was a bit surprised about. But then, if you look at Wijnaldum's international career. 62 caps for Holland, 18 goals. I mean, that's incredible. That's an incredible difference. And they are, broadly speaking, playing similar roles. And they've had both of those you know, teams, you know, it's had some hard times for England, you know, being knocked out by Iceland. You know, you've had some hard times for Holland. And both of these you know, sides, round about the same time, have now, you know, come back into relevant at international level. You know, Holland getting through to the uh, final of the Euro Nations. You know, England getting to the semi-finals of that. Which I think brings us on to sort of the broader question of really, how valuable is Jordan Henderson to Liverpool? If you were going to do a draft of you know, most important Liverpool players, I'd say you'd end up with you know, Firmino, Marnier, Salah, Alisson, Virgil van Dijk. Trent, Robertson, and really where you'd be fitting in Henderson 
is somewhere either before... You could even maybe argue that, you know, Fabinho and Wijnaldum would be above him. So really, you're looking at someone who maybe at best would be sort of seventh, eighth most important player for Liverpool. You know, in other words, I would, you know, you, Virgil, the fullbacks, the front three, even Fabinho, Alisson, I think they're all more key to Liverpool's success than Henderson. Okay, we'll do the same for England then. Kane, Sterling, Sancho, Rashford, Trent, Chilwell. And really where you'd be fitting in Henderson it is somewhere really between sort of Mason Mount, potentially even Deli Alley if he's on form with Deli Alley's numbers at international level, even sort of Declan Rice. Again, you're looking at someone who's sort of seventh, eighth most valuable player for England. There's always someone there who is, broadly speaking, more important, you know, does more. I think this really leads to the sort of wider question of had Henderson this season been replaced by Harry Winks or Mark Noble, would Liverpool have still won the, the title? I mean, both score, defend, pass, have you know, leadership quotient, do similar kind of roles at domestic level. Yeah, I think Liverpool would have won the title. Would there be a huge swing of difference? Maybe a few points here or there, but it's still a large margin. You know, this is a historically good and deep squad. You know, you've got Axel A. Chamberlain, you've got Naby Keita, you've even the signing of um, Mino Mina in January. You know, the numbers that Jordan Henderson has put up this season are not head and shoulders above any number of English midfielders in the Premier League. Theoretically speaking, with, you know, Keita, with Milner, with Fabinho, Wijnaldum, to be honest with you, Jordan Henderson could have played absolutely no minutes of Premier League football this season and Liverpool would have still won the title. You know, I think this is, the, the, the when you're trying to sort of conclude about Jordan Henderson, is that, again, there's a little bit of presenteeism. The point is, is that the, the one time that he was really sort of kicking into gear where he, he could have, I suppose, really pushed the actual bounds of his talent was really the 14-15 season. The point is is that when he was a more central figure for that Liverpool team, they finished sixth. The point is is that he reached that sort of fork in the road where basically either he could go to a different club and maybe slightly, you know, maybe kind of a mid to upper mid-table team and see how much, how far he could push his offensive talent. He's got it, you know, he's got all the bits and pieces. You know, he covers a huge amount of ground, he's a diligent pro, you know, he's got the shot, he's got the cross, got some passing. There's nothing really stopping him, nothing would have stopped him from seeing just how much talent he had, and how much responsibility he could have then imparted into the England team. He's not done that. The point is, is that Jordan Henderson has stayed pretty much the same. You know, he is slightly above, you know, league average. You know, he will get you, you know, between sort of four to six goals, you know, half a dozen assists most years. You know, he can fill in it, you know, in several different midfield roles 
but that's it. He's not someone that you put at fullback. He's not someone you could put at centre back. He's not someone that you could put at ten, or even in sort of the front three, like you couldn't with you know Wijnaldum, for example. You know, he's stayed the same. The teams around him have got better. In other words, the Fabinho signing, Virgil, Allison, with you know England, you've had Sterling, Sancho, Kane, Trent. All of these children, all of these players have then made England a, a, a better, more interesting team. And really, I think what, what's happened with Henderson's career is, is that he's plateaued. And he's really effectively been redeployed as an upper-end utility midfielder. He's a bit of an all-rounder. He can chip in, but at no point... But at no point is he either the fulcrum defensively, offensively, for either his club side or his international team. And it shows you how we overvalue captaincy in the sense that, is that we, you end up having to, to couch his career in all of this intangibles and narrative arcs really to cover up the fact that effectively he's really just a... That he's just a decent, slightly above average, you know, midfielder. And that for all the the medals, really, in the end, there's a sense of, whenever I think of Jordan Henson, of disappointment, of the player that he could have become. That really, it's just a cover for the... The captain's armband is really a shield that covers his underachievement and his lack of growth as a player. Thank you for listening.